So we are jumping into a new series this morning where we're going to be looking at some of the great prayers of the Old Testament. So prayer has been a little bit of a theme here at Redeemer. Uh, We're going to be studying prayer on Wednesday evenings for the next few weeks and leading up into Advent. We're going to be looking, like I said, at these prayers, these great prayers of the Old Testament. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a prayer. Actually, we're looking at two prayers this morning, but, but really digging into one in 1 Samuel chapter 2 by being prayed by a woman named Hannah. Now, before we jump into that, just a couple of things that I've been wrestling with throughout the week. Why do we pray? Why do we go to God with our problems, with our struggles? Why do we ask him to intervene? Why do we thank him for things that sometimes don't really look as though he had anything to do with? What is it about humanity and this desire to communicate with the divine? Well, to help us answer that question, we need to go back to the beginning, to that moment in history when humanity was created in the image of God, to the days when we would walk with the creator in the cool of the day, as it says in Genesis chapter 3, and finally to that fateful afternoon when we, in our pride, raise ourselves up above God, claiming that we no longer needed him yet receiving from his lips this promise of grace that even though we turned our backs on him, he would never do the same to us. See, God promised back in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of humanity, when, when we allowed ourselves to be deceived by the serpent in the garden, he gave this promise that he would crush the head of the serpent, that he would deal with the brokenness that we introduced, that we allowed, that we ushered into this world. And through all of those things, humanity was entrusted with this collective memory implanted deep within us, a knowledge that there was something bigger than all of us, a something or a someone who maybe even cared for us. Theologian and reformer John Calvin referred to this as the sensus divinitatis. And he says this, and I have a slide for this, that there exists in the human mind, and indeed by natural instinct, some sense of deity, we hold to be beyond dispute since God himself to prevent any man from pretending ignorance has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead, the memory of which he constantly renews and occasionally enlarges. that all to a man being aware that there is a God and that he is their maker. In other words, We all believe in the divine until convinced otherwise. We all believe in the divine until convinced otherwise. And I believe that it was because of that sense, that natural instinct that people, long after that promise was made to both Adam and Eve, to set right everything they had broken, that promise where God was going to crush the head of the serpent, that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, one Old Testament scholar, J. Gary Miller, believes 
that this is the moment back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, when prayer began. And he argues this because sin and its effects were now beginning to have their way with humanity. Cain had just killed Abel, and Lamech was singing songs, bragging to his wives about his ruthless acts of vengeance. And people were beginning to see that God's promise from Genesis 3.15 might not be fulfilled immediately. And so the people started to pray to call upon the name of Yahweh to deliver on his promise to crush the head of the serpent and to set right what Adam and Eve had left broken, a task that humanity was and still is incapable of performing on our own. Which is why Miller defines prayer, and I have a slide for this, as asking God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to admit our weakness, and appeal to his awesome strength. And this is why Miller argues that prayer began in chapter 4 of Genesis after the fall of humanity because throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, prayer always seems to be a response to the broken and fallen reality of creation. We pray prayers of lament when we look upon the brokenness of this world. We pray that God would intervene and set the brokenness to rights. And we pray prayers of praise and thanksgiving when his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is clearly designed and only necessary in a fallen world. Which brings us to the heart and story of Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. A little bit of context as always. The story begins during a season in the history of God's people when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was the time of the judges. To situate ourselves on a timeline a bit, we're a few hundred years removed from Joshua entering the promised land, following Israel's 40 years of wandering aimlessly through the desert. At this time, the people were ruled by judges, some of whom were fine, but for the most part, as the years rolled on, these leaders and the people, they distanced themselves from their God and they dug themselves deeper and deeper into a pit of depravity. One scholar even observed that the way the book of Judges is written, it begins with perfectly fluent Hebrew, and then it devolves into something that would sound like broken English to our ears, which is fascinating for those of you who are interested in that sort of thing. And it's into this world that Hannah enters the scene. Hannah and Penina, Penina, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, were both wives of a man named Elkanah. The text tells us that Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. That's a key moment in the story. But Elkanah loved Hannah, even though she couldn't have kids. However, Penina mocked Hannah. Now, in those days, historically, it was a deeply shameful thing to not be able to have children. And so this, coupled with Penina's harsh treatment, it caused Hannah to fall into a deep depression where she couldn't even eat. This broke her husband's heart. But Hannah doesn't look for refuge in the arms of her husband, but rather she runs to her God. 
Through tears of lament, Hannah calls upon the name of the Lord for his intervention, and she prays the following, and there's a slide up there for this. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And so Hannah, weary and heavy laden, she goes into the presence of God and she begs for salvation. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to suggest that there's a reason why Judges and Samuel are side by side in the ordering of the Hebrew Bible. Now I'm very aware that Ruth comes before 1 Samuel. But that was not always the case. And that's not how our Jewish friends read their scriptures. In fact, the ordering of the Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, it tells a story. And Hannah sits at a hinge point between those days where there was no king in Israel and the promise and the establishment of the royal line of David, from whom the Messiah would emerge. Hannah's a big deal. I don't think she knows that, but Hannah's a big deal. <clears throat> What's the point? Hannah is in the pit. But it's not lost on her that her people, God's people, are right down there with her. So she prays, and she prays for her own salvation, that she would bear a son. But then she immediately promises that son to God. Why? Why? Who in their right mind, and we're going to see what dedicating your child to God looked like in those days. It's a, it's a little bit different, PJ. All right? Why in the world, after all these years, of, of feeling this shame, of feeling this pain. She prays that God would give her a son, and then immediately after she prays that, she says, and he's all yours. Well, because there's something bigger about her desire for a son than just her own longings to be a mother and the removal of her shame. Because she, too, longs for the day when God will make good on his promise to crush the head of the serpent and set the world to rights. Hannah's prayer for a son is a response to the broken and fallen nature of this world, but her prayer stretches beyond just what is impacting her individually, and that's what we'll see put on full display as we work through the heart of Hannah in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 of 1 Samuel. So Hannah has this child, names him Samuel, and as she promised, she gave him to the Lord by entrusting him to Eli, the priest serving in what seems to be the tabernacle. And after she gives up her firstborn son, that's what she does. She gives up her firstborn son, which is a theme, as we know, that kind of tracks throughout all of Scripture. She gives up her firstborn son, she prays a prayer of thanksgiving. Check it out. Second Sam, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And Hannah prayed, and she said, My heart exalts in the Lord, 
My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth because the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The first thing Hannah says is, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. Now, for some reason, the ESV translates this as strength, but horn is a much better translation. And if you have a footnote in your Bible, you'll see that horn is written there at the bottom. We've talked about this concept of horn before. Hannah's horn, which was raised not by herself but by God, evokes the image of a ram or a bull flaunting its instrument of power, typically after victory over an opponent. We had a whole sermon that was kind of based around this just a few months back. Horn language is used throughout Scripture, and it's associated with the weak and the marginalized being freed from some sort of oppression. She derides her enemies, or rather, she opens her mouth widely against her enemies. And the reason she speaks with such confidence, and, and she does, all of a sudden, there's this renewed confidence in Hannah. God answered her prayer. She has been vindicated. God is dealing with her shame. Penina's over there like, oh, ooh. she's got a baby now. But the reason why is because she is rejoicing in her salvation. This is important. She's speaking of God giving her this child as an act of salvation because no longer does she bear the shame of being childless. Even though she has given that child right back to God, Hannah gets it. It's not about her, which is why she goes on to praise God, calling him holy, a rock, and finally warning others, and maybe, and I'd say probably, She's warning her husband's wife to not think so highly of herself because God knows and he is our judge. There's a sense here, if you read between the lines, that she's talking trash to her husband's other wife. I don't know if you catch that. I don't know if you catch when she says, let not arrogance come from your mouth. Who was speaking arrogance just a couple of verses before, none other than her husband's other wife? And so Hannah is glorying in the fact that God answered her prayer, and while she might be posturing a bit, this looks more like when a kid's older brother shows up to the playground to finally put the neighborhood bully in his place as the kid is standing behind his brother kind of pointing his finger saying, yeah, right, whatever he, right? You got to get the picture? That's a little bit of the image that's going on here. So you might be asking, what are we supposed to learn about prayer by looking at this passage? Well, if Hannah's plight is representative of Israel, and I believe it is, then maybe Penina's harsh treatment of her is representative of the serpent's constant attacks against God's good creation. 
See, Revelation 18 and the beginning of 19 shows a boisterous crowd of God's saints rejoicing at the fall of Babylon the Great, the kingdoms of this world. See, when God answers prayer, when he allows the goodness of his kingdom to seep into the brokenness of our lives, man, that is a cause to celebrate because the neighborhood bully is that much closer to being crushed. But almost immediately, almost immediately, Hannah zooms out and recognizes that it's not just about her and her salvation, but that there's a larger story being written of which her experience is a small and beautiful part. See, that's such an important reality that we have to wrap our minds around about Hannah and honestly about all of our lives. There is this story being told of Jesus conquering evil, conquering death, conquering sin, and one day returning and establishing his new creation of where we will spend eternity with him. And all of our individual stories are being wrapped up into that big one. By faith, they're being wrapped up into it. And that's precisely what's going on with Hannah right now as we read through what's, what's, what she's experiencing. So check this out, verse four and following. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. So prior to giving birth to Samuel, Hannah was right there with that crew that she's talking about. She lived among the feeble, the hungry, the barren, the poor, and the needy. Her life was marked by pain. And, and here's the deal, right? Like, like I said before, if you were unable to have a child in the ancient world, you were experiencing deep shame. Her husband loved her. 100%, we see that. It's beautiful. Read chapter one. It really is beautiful how much her husband loves her, but that doesn't remove the societal pressure and shame that Hannah would have been experiencing. And, and, and those of us might even experience and resonate with this. Like, like we can be told by, by our significant others how wonderful we are. We can be told by our parents about how wonderful we are. It doesn't change the fact of what we're feeling on the inside. Like those are, we need to hear those things. But sometimes that societal pressure and that societal shame, it still impacts us. Regardless of what our, our, our nearest and dearest communicate to us and affirm to us. Continue doing that. Continue affirming your, your, your nearest and dearest as they're going through difficulty. But oftentimes, that doesn't remove the pain that they're going through. And so, yeah, Hannah's husband was great, but she still was depressed and wouldn't eat, right? So she understood all this. Her life, as I said, was marked by pain. But what's beautiful about her story after those things are starting to be reversed in her life, she doesn't forget where she came from. 
And so she prays for those who are still walking through the valley of the shadow of death, longing for the days when their lot would also be reversed just as hers was. See, the thing about answered prayer is that it doesn't necessarily remove the scars from the years of pain when all we had to cling to were the promises of God. I think we can resonate with that. Just because your prayers were answered doesn't remove the pain and the scars that you experienced as you walk through it. We all know what that's like. We all know what that's like. And I believe that has a little bit to do with why Hannah still has eyes to see the feeble, hungry, barren, poor, and needy. In our day, we call this trauma, and I am no expert on trauma. But I am familiar with what one theologian, Henry Nouwen, calls the wounded healer. It's a concept I came across in a religion class in high school, and it just resonated with me. It's the idea that the pain we go through if we allow both God and others into it, then it doesn't have to simply be pain and trauma that we experienced that has shaped us for better or for worse, but it can also be a catalyst that leads us to coming alongside others who are hurting. And it provides us with the empathy required to care well for those who are also in the pit, walking through their own valley of the shadow of death. I mean, isn't that exactly what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And not only was Jesus tempted, but he too experienced the brokenness of this world, which drove him to his knees and ultimately led him to the cross. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The point I'm trying to make is that while Hannah celebrates her own salvation, her vindication, her victory over her husband's other wife, like that's real, who treated her like trash, she recognizes that there are, there are others who have yet to experience the salvation of God, so she prays for them. She allows her answered prayer to remind her of the plight of the world around her, of all those other unanswered prayers that people are walking through. She allows her answered prayer to remind her of the unanswered prayers that so many around her are experiencing. See, far too often when we pray, we get lost in ourselves. We forget about the struggles of those around us, our neighbors, our friends, our family, the global church, the lost, the pain being experienced by so many in this world. I said earlier, quoting Gary Miller, that prayer is clearly designed and only necessary in a fallen world. In the past few weeks alone, we've seen war, the death of literally thousands of innocent people, that's real. Thousands of innocent people have died in the last few weeks since October 7th. Women and children included. This past week, there was another mass shooting. Not to mention the personal struggles we're all going through. Where is our answered prayer? 
At the same time, what are the things we are thanking God for? And how can we allow those things, how can we allow God to use those things to remind us of the plight of our neighbors? So we can pray. But more than pray, we can also act. And maybe that's not fair, more than pray. I actually don't like that phrasing. But also act. See, I really believe, as I was working through Hannah's prayer, it was just, it just popped out on the page to me. It was like so obvious. That first stanza, verses one through three, she is thinking about herself. She's thanking God that she has experienced his salvation, that her enemies were vindicated. And it's as she's praying those prayers, she's beginning to recognize that there's a whole world out there that has not yet experienced what she's experienced, and so she's moved now to pray for them as well. That's what we see unfolding in this second stanza of Hannah's prayer. She's praying for that great reversal to have its way in so many others who are experiencing the same pain that she had experienced. Prayer is a response to the fallen and broken nature of this world. And, and like Hannah, our prayers have to stretch beyond the things that are impacting us individually. And hopefully, hopefully, if we pray that way, we'll start to live that way. And I really do believe that's how it works, right? We, we've talked about prayer and spiritual disciplines as, as giving God time and space to have his way with us. And so if we are giving God time and space to have his way with us, and the things we're praying for are, are, are the brokenness of the world around us, whether it's those immediate people in our sphere of influence, friends, families, neighbors, people in our body, to, to things that are going on globally, that's going to start to have its effect on us. It's going to start to change us. And, and Lord willing, it, it starts to rip away that, that consumeristic zeal that we all have as, as good Americans, right? And it starts to give us those eyes to see and those ears to hear. I'm not sitting here telling you I've mastered this. Part of the reason why I am so focused on prayer for our church is because I am struggling in my own prayer life. Guys, I am not a rock star prayer warrior, whatever that means. Like, I'm just not. Like, there's times, like, I was sick for like three days, and like, I always hear stories. People are like, oh, I was sick, and the Lord had me on my back, and I was just praying while I was sick. I was like, I was watching documentaries on John Gotti. Like, that's what I did. That's what I did. And, and like, yeah, I, I was, honestly, I felt too sick. I didn't want to pray. I was like, I don't feel good. I just want to watch TV and veg. So this is for me. I'm being selfish. This is why we're talking about prayer, because I got to figure this out. I got to be better, right? I, I share this with Tim all the time. I'm like, I'm like I got to get better at this prayer thing. And he's like, yeah, you do, yeah. He's like, you're kind of our pastor. You should really work on it. Like I said, as our prayers start to stretch beyond the things that are impacting us individually, hopefully as we pray that way, we'll start to live that way. And honestly, isn't that the story of Jesus? 
that he identified himself with the bruised, broken, and battered of society, that he poured out grace upon them, physically healing them, feeding their bellies, and then meeting our deepest need by dying on a cross and reconciling us back to God. This is the great reversal. And they are the acts of a stunning reverser. Yahweh himself, who has the power, who buries and resurrects, who enriches and impoverishes, and who exalts the children of a barren woman to sit on thrones. Oh, that's good. That is such good news. That's what God is doing. That's what he did in the life of Hannah, and she recognizes it, and she wants that for others. And see, that's where it's got to affect us. Like, we can't be the sort who just receive God's blessing, but never give it back out to others. God wants us to participate in his kingdom come. And that's what Hannah's doing, right? Like, do you see that working itself out? She's a participant in the story. And how does she participate? By praying, but not simply by praying. She prays, and then she gives the very thing that God gave to her, the answer to her prayer. She gives it back to God. Holy moly, that's amazing. She gets it, and she gets the little thing that was kind of slipped in one of the letters in the New Testament that Jesus spoke at some point in his ministry, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Like, she gets it before it's even spoken. And so as God gives to us and he lavishes upon us, and we know this, our salvation alone is just massive. He's now saying, do something with it. Give it. Give it back. Right? Like, like as, 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 as we say, as the cool kids say now, pay it forward. Right? Is that still cool? No. As the not-so-cool kids say now. So if you are saying it, you, according to Anna, are not cool. Take it up with her. I, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Where am I here? I'm all over the place. Um, yeah, okay. But Hannah doesn't stop there. That's where I am. Um, let's finish the prayer. Right? It says this in the last section of verse 8 through verse 10. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. There's all sorts of messianic language here, in case you're wondering. That word anointed, king, it's all pointing towards something. But let's see, let's see, let's see if I'm correct. So in this last section, Hannah stretches her eschatological imagination even further into the future. To a day when the final blow to God's enemies will be made. Now, it, while it might feel as though this world is in the hand of the enemy, and it does sometimes, right, especially these last number of weeks, 
It really does feel like the world is not like we sing, he's got the whole world in his hands, and then, and then you kind of be like, are you sure? What does he say? He says, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. See, Redeemer, this prayer of Hannah was something she was hoping for. But dare I say, it's something that we are privileged to be experiencing right now. Let me explain. The nature of God's kingdom is what we often describe as already and not yet. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me say those words. Already and not yet. That's how the kingdom is. There's a, there's a, there's a, a sense in which we are experiencing the realities of God's kingdom, but we also know it has not yet been fully realized. Sorry, I'm still a little, a little sick. I'm losing my spot here. <laughs> Meaning, okay, all right. So when he proclaimed, I'm sorry, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, back in the New Testament, you remember those words that Jesus would go around and he would say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he was saying is that the kingdom of heaven is here, like in him. And then he went to war for three years, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, and teaching us <clears throat> how to make his kingship visible. And the primary way that we do this, that we make his kingship visible, you're never going to guess it, by loving God and loving neighbor. That's how we do it. And then proclaiming the good news and embodying the good news with works of sacrificial love and service, which, let's be honest, it's how each person in this room who knows Jesus came to know him. Somebody loved you, and somebody demonstrated that love toward you in probably a very tangible way, and then they spoke the words of truth, and you believed. If you have a different story, tell me. If you were like alone on a desert island and God like spoke to your brain, and gave, like, then tell me. But the majority of us, somebody loved us enough to come alongside us and then share good news. The text says in verse 9 that he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness because not by might shall a man prevail. Hannah prays for the day when this will be true. And man, not by might will man prevail? That just sounds like Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Because we live in a world where we think might does prevail, where we think a response to violence is more violence. Those are the weapons of the enemy. We've talked about this. But the weapons of God are turning the other cheek, peace, love and mercy and compassion and kindness. And honestly, it looks like the Sermon on the Mount because that's how Jesus achieved his victory. Not by might, but by dying. She then prays in verse 10 for a day when the adversaries of the Lord will be, Lord, will be broken to pieces. See, Redeemer, that day is coming but it has also arrived in part. And just to show my hand theologically, Revelation 20 teaches us that Satan is bound. 
that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Guys, the gospel goes forth to the nations. Like there are people from so many different tribes, tongues, and nations who know Jesus, whereas prior to Jesus' coming, it was pretty concentrated in one spot. But he still, the enemy, roams around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, trying to crush God's image bearers. And he has successes at times. And we mourn and lament that success. And that's why we pray. And that's why we act. That's why we love and welcome the bruised, battered, and broken into our midst. It's why we allow our prayers of thanksgiving to give way to prayers for those who are struggling which will lead us to pray and long for the day when God will finally set to rights the brokenness of this world. When Satan is no longer bound, but rather he is done away with completely and destroyed along with sin and death. You see, Hannah's prayer, it's the story of God's salvation from individual to neighbor to cosmic. And it also provides us with a pattern, a pattern that even resembles the way Jesus taught the disciples to pray, prayers that are marked by worship, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, by mission, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, by personal need, give us this day our daily bread. It's not exact, and I'm not going to pretend that it is, but there is a rhythm to Hannah's prayer that I hope challenges us in the way we approach our God. Hannah, who lived in a time of great turmoil, also experienced personal trials. And it's her personal trials that moves her initially to pray. And then God answers. And she thanked him with praise and celebration. And then, in the midst of that thanksgiving, she was reminded that there were others who needed the sort of reversal she experienced, who also needed the salvation of God, so she prayed for them. And in praying for them, she found herself longing for the day when prayer would no longer be necessary because the adversaries of God would be destroyed and his judgments would reach to the ends of the earth. Oh, there's so much we can learn from this woman who stood at one of the major hinge points of redemptive history who God partnered with through her faithful, tear-filled prayers to bring about not only her salvation, but the salvation of all the earth. Yeah, Hannah prayed for a son. That son was named Samuel. Samuel anointed David. David is the line through whom Jesus entered into this world, our savior, our king. And so, as one theologian puts it, Samuel serves as kind of a kingmaker. But maybe Hannah serves as kind of a kingmaker. Maybe that's the more appropriate way to read the story, that it was Hannah's faithfulness in the midst of her pain that drove her to her knees to partner with God to bring about the man who would anoint the one through whom Jesus would come and save us all from our sins. If that's not good news, then I don't know what is. When we pray, we are partnering with God in the cosmic. Hannah didn't realize it, and most of the time when we're on our knees, 
we don't realize it either. But that's the work that's being done behind the scenes. So pray. Pray as Hannah prayed. Pray as Hannah prayed through tears, whatever it is you're going through. Hannah experienced it. Man, she walked through the valley of the shadow of death, yet she ran to her God. She didn't run to her husband. She ran to her God. That's important. We've been trying to teach our kids this. They come down and they're scared from a nightmare and, and, and my wife will be like, well, why don't you pray? You don't need me to pray for you. I'm happy to do it, but why don't you try praying? Why don't you try wrestling with God yourself? Right? Let's give that gift to our kids, but let's also do it ourselves. Let's pray. Don't hear what I'm not saying. You, we need each other. Don't, that doesn't mean don't go to your people, but pray. Throw yourself into the arms of God. That's what Hannah did. And man, what happened as a result? It's good stuff. It's good news. I'm going to pray now because then I'm just going to keep rambling. So let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. God, I want to pray like Hannah prayed. I want to have her faith. I want to trust the way she trusts in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of shame. I want to run into your arms, Lord God. I want to allow my experiences to be used for your glory, for your good, for the good of my, my brothers and my sisters, for the good of those who don't know you, Lord God. I pray that for all of us, Lord God. I pray that we would have the confidence to, to let you in, the faith to let you in, and then even the, the, the courage to let others in, wisely let others in, so that they might grow and experience change because of maybe some of the pain that we experienced, Lord God. You use it all, Lord God. That's the pattern of redemption, Lord God. You use broken things to bring life. That's the, that's the gospel. That's, that's the that's the cross, Lord God. So thank you for that. God, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the salvation that you've entrusted to us, Lord. Help us to steward it well, to use it wisely, and to extend the hope of the kingdom wherever we might go, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.